Well, good morning. It's good to be together today. You've heard the saying, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. You've heard that saying, right? I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. And the idea behind that saying is that something was decided in which it would have been juicy to hear how they got to that conversation. Maybe two people from two very different perspectives arguing back and forth and a desire to know what exactly happened, what was said in that juicy conversation. Oh, to be a fly on the wall. Last week, we looked at your love language as a disciple of Christ, which is ultimately a loving rebuke. And we got there by examining specifically Paul confronting and rebuking Peter. And in this situation, as he confronted him, he did it publicly in front of everybody for everyone to see. So as you remember what's taking place here in Galatia, this region at the church in Antioch, is we have Peter who's, who's choosing to fellowship not with Gentile believers, but with specifically ethnically Jewish believers. And as he's doing so, what's taking place is the church is in the danger of falling into one of two serious errors. On this side over here, we have legalism. And what's, ha- what's taking place is the church is being tempted. Many of the Gentile believers in the church are being tempted to believe that in order to actually be made right with God, in order to actually be forgiven and saved, I must also keep the civil national laws of Israel. And this is becoming a stumbling block as they're tempted to falling off into legalism on this side. Next week in chapter 3, as we begin that, verse 1 through 9, we're going to see how Paul paints this incredibly clear picture for us. But this other danger is taking place. Because in a fear of falling into legalism, doing X, Y, or Z to be ultimately accepted before God, and the body as well, following these, these national laws, they begin to run backwards. And in running backwards, what do we usually do? We fall down. And many in the church, the Gentile believers specifically, have fallen into a licentious lifestyle, a a, a live-it-up lifestyle, with the idea of, you've already been forgiven, Jesus already paid your debt on the cross, so what's it hurt? Do it. And it's trampling grace, and it's causing this massive tension in the church. So these individuals are coming from Jerusalem, and they're saying, hey, we'll help you out. Just keep the civil laws of Israel and all will be made right. But what's happening by reading between the lines as well is they're falling into adding to the gospel. This beautiful truth of salvation by grace alone, unearned favor. Grace alone through faith alone. This gift of God, not in us or not in us and works, but in Jesus alone. This beautiful truth that anchors us. It anchors our hearts. It anchors our lives through all seasons of life, that we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul confronts Peter. Wouldn't it be nice to know exactly what he said to help set him straight? Good news, my fellow flies. Today we get to see exactly what Paul said to Peter to set him straight. Because disciples ultimately are called to do two things. To be committed to defending This beautiful message, this beautiful news, this beautiful truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But they're also called, well, secondly, to be living this beautiful truth, defending the beautiful truth and living 
the beautiful truth. So as you have your Bibles, let's look over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, please do take a, a pewback Bible in front of you and follow along with us. If you don't own a Bible, take that pewback Bible as a gift from Grace Bible Church to you personally. As we come to verse 15 through 19, again, disciples are devoted to defending the beautiful truth. And in so doing, he establishes three things that Paul and Peter clearly hold. Three things. And the first we're going to notice in verse 15. We know that some are graciously raised with an understanding of the law. Some are raised with an understanding of the law, of God, and some are not. So I'm actually going to begin for us about verse 14, about halfway through verse 14 from last week, because it picks right up where we left off. And then we'll read verse 15 as well. So reading from the English Standard Version, Paul says, If you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, so remember there's Jews and non-Jews, so if you're not ethnically Jewish, you are a Gentile. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you, Peter, force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now here we go, verse 15. We... That's Paul, Peter, all ethnic Jewish Christians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The way for the Gentile Christians to be made right with God is, is not by adopting the civil laws of Israel. Now, 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 wade with me through these first couple of verses, especially this first particular part, because a danger that we can have, remember, as good Bible interpreters, we want to understand what the Bible is talking about in its context before we take the principles that we discover and apply them faithfully to our life as people that desire to know Jesus and live for Jesus and make other followers of Jesus. But first, we have to do the legwork to understand what was their context, what was taking place. And from the very beginning, Paul is establishing in a reminder to Peter and a declaration to Peter what they both already know. It's that ultimately some are graciously, by the gift of God, born with an understanding the promises of God, and the goodness of the law. The law is not bad. The law reveals, however, that we are lawbreakers against God. He's going to really emphasize that in our next chapter. But none of us can be made right with following the laws given to Moses. And so, in the same way, Peter would say, yeah, I totally agree with that. You're 100% right. They cannot make us right with God. Only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're going to hear that about 4,500 more times this sermon. So my goal is to actually brainwash you so as you're going to bed tonight, instead of saying I love you, if you're married, you'll say, say by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Good night. I'm going to get you. It's a matter of time. But some of us are born, all of us are born in different areas. We control much of our calendars, don't we? You look at your week, you, you have a set schedule, who you're going to talk with, what you're going to do. But none of us can determine where we're born. None of us have the authority to do that. And yet some will be born, he says, under the law. They're going to know the law, the gracious gift of the law. The law reveals for us that we are lawbreakers against God. None of us can determine where we're born. And every one of us has different adversities. And from the very beginning, though, we have this beautiful promise in the cross of Christ. Is that whether you were born as a Jew, knowing the law of God, that ultimately points the way to Jesus or you were born as a Gentile, not knowing the law of God. If you will but look to Jesus, the only one who kept the fullness of the law, you will have forgiveness of sins. You will be made right with God. 
You will have true forgiveness and eternal life. You will have a king and purpose right now. If you will, but look to Christ. Forget your birth and what happened. Forget your genealogy. Look to Jesus and have life. And he establishes this clear truth in the very beginning. The law was not given to make us right with God, but the law reveals that we are lawbreakers against a righteous and holy God. What a humbling truth that is. That I don't look at you and say, how dare you? I don't judge you. And you don't get to judge me. A part of us in our culture hears that message and we think, we think yeah, that's right. But God does judge us. And that's where we say, oh no. Because God judges not just simply the outward appearance, but he judges the hearts. And the law reveals for us that every one of us, regardless of your age, we are rebels against a holy God. Some are born under the gracious understanding of the law, and some are not, but we have this in common. The law ultimately points us to Jesus, because all of us, if we're honest, have to look at our resumes of sin against God and say, I am broken, woe is me. Oh, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What a humbling Beautiful doctrine. What a beautiful truth that we have to stand on and champion in our lives. Regardless of your upbringing, the end of the story of all of this is that we look forward to Christ. He's going to unpack that in great detail in verses to come. But he begins from the very beginning. Some are graciously raised with an understanding of the law of God. And secondly, into verse 16, we know that the gracious gift that is the law of God, it cannot make one right with God. The gracious gift that is the law of God. While given unto Moses, it cannot make one right with God. Verse 16. Now, before we read this, again, my sermon probably would have been two or three times longer than this. But this verse for us is kind of like a hyperlink. And it's something like a website where you click on it, and it's got a little plus sign, and it unpacks it. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure there's a word for what I'm looking for. But that's you know what I'm talking about. You click on it, and all of a sudden, all the text expounds what you want to see. Verse 16 for us gets expounded in chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 11. So our verses today, as we walk through this, if you say, but what about this? Chapter 3 through 4, 11 is going to, boom, it's going to unpack that for us. So you can correct me after the service and make me feel terrible that I don't know what that word is. But that's what this verse does. So again, verse 16, important to gain an understanding of, because it's going to be unpacked in greater detail in the following verses in chapter 3 through 4.11. But here we go, verse 16. He continues his argument. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we all also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The law of God cannot make us right with God. What is the Old Testament law? The Old Testament law is not bad, but it does do something in us as well. Not only does it show us our sin like a mirror, like a mirror that shows you sometimes in the morning when you wake up, you look at the mirror and it shows you what you don't want to see a lot of times, right? Oh, I shouldn't look like that. No, I look that bad. The law reveals our sin, but the the law also provokes us in our sin. The law provokes us in our sin. If you've ever worked with kids, you know that's true. Do not do that. And what does the kid want to do? Not only if you've worked with kids, but if you've ever worked with yourself. When somebody tells you don't do that, what do you want to do? 
that, right? You, ooh, I wouldn't mind actually doing that myself. Or who are you to tell me I can't do that? The law of God is not bad, but it's meant to point forward to Jesus. The Old Testament law reveals the care and the character of God. But ultimately, what the law's purpose to do is to point out that we're all guilty and hopeless and we need Jesus. We need the one that's able to satisfy the full demands of the law. And that's why we come humbly and joyfully to look to Christ. We're able to sing the songs that we sing because of Christ. He is our good hope. That's the nutshell of what we're talking about. There's this clear contrast that he gives us here in verse 16. You cannot be made right with God by believing in Jesus alone. Contrasted with, you cannot be made right with God except by works of the law. These two are enemies of each other. They can't coexist. You can't have both. You don't get to have Jesus plus something. It doesn't exist. It's not possible. It's a totally different news. It's not beautiful truth. It's poisonous truth. It may look good, but it is not good. It is hopeless. It will not deliver you. It is not the rock to build your life on. It is not the foundation to build your marriage on or your future on or your purpose on. It's a false gospel. And the question becomes for us, what is this word justified? Or maybe your translation is translated there as righteous. I believe here it's talking about this legal sense, to be made right with God. Righteous. To be justified, to legally be made right with God. See, 1 John 3, 4, 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin by nature is breaking the law of God. And all of us in this room are lawless. We are all rebels against God, and God has a criminal record against every one of us. Because He is good and just, He must punish us. If He does not punish you or I for what we've done against Him as lawbreakers, He is unjust. That's a problem. You and I cannot clean ourselves up. We are guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I think in this first sense, the word justified is talking about how can, are you saved is another way we might say it. Are you right with God or are you not? In 17 and 18, I think he's going to apply it in a relational sense, in an ethical sense, a right-wrong sense. You're justified in doing so and so. Now, the reason I said stay with me on these first couple of verses is because I don't think there's a lot of people going through Nacogdoches saying, hey, you need to make sure you're circumcised. You need to make sure you keep the Israel laws to be made right with God. I don't think that's a, I may be wrong. I've been here that long, but I don't think there's a groundswell for that right now, right? Those aren't the people knocking on your doors. Those aren't the conversations you're having. There's no massive social media buzz about also doing that in the Christian world. But there is a pressure, I believe absolutely, here in Texas, here in Nacogdoches, that is strong as ever, that has the pressure and the temptation that says, I will not actually be accepted before God unless I also do fill in the blank. It's all over the place. Maybe I've missed out. Maybe my salvation is only a partial salvation. What do I actually have to do? What have I missed? I don't feel supercharged. I still wrestle against sin. And so some people wrongly understand and think, well, if I'm baptized, then I'll be made legally right before God. And that is not true. 
Baptism will not add .001% to your salvation. Now, don't mishear me. Baptism is a gift of God. If you're a believer, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, in obedience to Christ, you should be baptized. Absolutely. But your baptism won't make you acceptable before God. Going to church is a, is a gift of God, but going to church will not make you right with God. He's not angry at you. Then all of a sudden you showed up at church that day, and he's like, okay, we're cool. But make sure you're there next week. Now, don't leave today, right? <laughs> Some of you just get up and leave. Uh, but it's a gift of God to, to gather with the church body, but it will not make you right or more acceptable before God. Daily Bible reading, Bible reading, it will not make you right with God. And if you're like me and you're behind on your Bible reading plan, you're thinking, oh, thank goodness. But that's a gift of God to grow us in our faith greatly. Jesus says even if you work miracles and cast out demons, that's not enough to make you right with God. Matter of fact, let's bookmark this. We'll come right back to it. But look over to Matthew chapter 7. Look over to Matthew 7 where Jesus says this. This is incredible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Now, as we look over there, and this interaction that Jesus gives is, is pretty incredible. I have never worked a miracle or cast out demons. But I would say if that happened, that would be like on my resume of, hey, by the way, turns out. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who is the one that perfectly does the will of the Father? Jesus, right? Jesus. Jesus alone. So what do we have with that? Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What have these individuals trusted in to be made right with God? Did these individuals trust in grace through faith alone, in Christ alone? Did they trust in the sinless works of Christ or did they trust in some affinity to Jesus? They did these things in his name, his authority. But they trusted in what? What they did in addition to Jesus. Jesus plus something, as you've heard before, equals nothing. It equals a false gospel. I hope that that shakes you. The only works that we're made right with are by the faithful works of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The only way you and I as criminals against God are made acceptable and pleasing before God are by the sinless offering that Christ has paid on your behalf on the cross. Christ is our only hope. The law of God cannot make you right with God. Following your conscience cannot make you right with God. Trying to do good things cannot make you right with God. If you trust in anything but Christ alone, you are lost and under the just judgment of God upon your life. That does not make you feel good. 
And it sure doesn't make me feel good telling you that. But if you know Christ, what does it do? It makes you say, thank you, Jesus. It makes us say, thank you, Jesus. Because I went from an enemy to a child. Because Christ truly paid my debt. I truly am saved by this beautiful truth of salvation by grace alone, unearned favor, through faith alone, this gift of God in Christ alone, as I've turned and trusted in Jesus alone. His works make us stand before God on judgment, not ours. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is a transfer of identity, a transfer of authority. By works of the law, no one will be justified, but simply by believing we are made right with God, turning and trusting in Jesus. Belief, let me define that word for us, because the word belief probably brings a couple images into your mind. We're not talking about it in the sense of a test, like a, like a student in a classroom that says, I believe the United States is a country. We're talking about it in the sense that a soldier on the way to take the beaches of Normandy on D-Day would be sitting in the boat clutching his rifle, getting ready for the door to go down and the bullets to fly in as he says, I believe in the United States of America. Do you see the very two different understandings of belief? To be honest with you, I think there are unbelievable numbers of people in Nacogdoches in our state, in our country, that believe the first kind of way, but have never trusted Jesus in the sense of a declaration of allegiance, surrender and allegiance to Jesus. But oh, if you have, what life we have. We've been made right with God. By works of the law, no one will be justified. We, we know thirdly that in Christ we are freed from living under the law of God. In Christ, we are freed from living under the law of God. Verse 17 through 19. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul tells Peter, Peter, look, brother, you and I are already in the eyes of the Jews that have not trusted Christ. We are already rebels. We went from people persecuting the gospel, I went, Paul says, to now I'm preaching the gospel. I'm already a rebel. I'm already broken by the law alone. The law points us to Christ. The law points us to Christ. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. The purpose of the law is to point us to the goodness of Christ. And so the people in the church that are tempted to say, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe, and actually to be accepted before God, I need to keep these nationalistic laws that God gave to Israel through Moses. Then I'm actually accepted. Those people are walking away from who the law points to. The law points us to Jesus. Who's the law point us to? Jesus. You have people that are already claiming Jesus, and now they're pointing back to the law. You see the confusion that they're under. Yeah, I made right with Jesus, but I must keep the law. And he says, no, Peter, we've already torn that down. If you go back to it, it's simply going to do what? Point back here. So stay here. 
this is the finish line. Don't try to rerun the race backwards. You're going the wrong direction. And he sets them straight. You see, in a way, as believers, we are not wired to run on the fuel of the law. We are wired to run on the fuel of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So we don't err on either side of these to licentious living, living it up, and lawless living, or lawful living. We live, rather, by the Spirit of God who testifies according to the Word of God. As a church body, we testify to make disciples because the Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ. We are a disciple-making body under the authority of the Word of God, fueled by the Spirit as we live out the Word of God in our lives. That's the testimony of a Bible-teaching church. That is who we are. That is our true identity. The law's purpose is to work its way out of a job. You ever heard that saying? The law's purpose is to work its way out of a job. That's what good leaders do, and that's what the law did. It worked its way out of the job, so stop trying to employ it right, to make you right. Can't do it. I can't do it. So first we saw that disciples are ultimately devoted to defending the beautiful truth, and now secondly, disciples are devoted to living the beautiful truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'll give you two reasons for this. The first in verse 20. Why are we devoted to living the beautiful truth? Well, because of Christ's work, every, every disciple, because of Christ's work, every disciple has survived their own funeral. If you're a Christian, you have survived your own funeral. Verse 20 is one of the most famous verses, I think, in the New Testament. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Last week we talked about the fact that as a Christian, our very first identity and claim is that I am a sinner. But what does sin lead to? claim to be a Christian is to claim to be a dead man, a dead woman. So what have you died to? Let me give you three quick areas where you've already had a funeral. Did you know it? You've survived your funeral. And here's what you've died to according to the Word of God. First, you've died to sin. You have died to sin. I'll give you a reference. I'll read it for you. I won't give you time to flip there. But Romans chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. If you are a Christian, you've already had a funeral, the fact that you have died to sin. Verse 9 says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now listen to verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've already had a funeral for your sin. It's been taken care of. Now you're free to live for Christ. So die to sin, and then secondly, you've died to self. That first reference was Romans 6, 9 through 11. This reference is 2 Corinthians 15, 15. 2 Corinthians 15, 15. It says this, And he died for all, Jesus, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You have died to yourself. If you're a Christian, you have died to sin and you've died to self. It's not about you and it's certainly not about me. We've died to sin, we've died to self, and thirdly, we've died to the world. Colossians 2.20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? 
As Christians, we have died to sin, self, and the world. One of our members, Laura Culpepper, has written some tremendous poetry. A fellow member gave me a book of her some time ago. And she wrote a poem called Death of Self. It struck me that time. And so as I came to this text, Galatians 2.20, I wanted to allude to it. I won't read for you the whole poem, but I do want to read for you one of the, the last portions that reflects this Galatians 2.20 call. Listen to this. Beautiful. Through death of self, I'll have such life. With zeal, I'll grasp submission's knife. To the altar, self must die. How willing of a soul am I. A local church body, a congregation, helps each other continually get back on the altar. Submitting ourselves and reminding each other that, hey, 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 you've already died to sin self in the world. Stop trying to live that way. That's a loving rebuke. That's the call of a Christian. We are bound together. You are bound to the other members of this body to help each other live out what it means to be dead to sin self in the world. That is our calling one to another. We have a ministry of the pew not only to sing over each other, as Stephen says so wonderfully so often, but to help hold each other accountable. Because as has been said before, living offerings have a tendency to crawl off the offering table. And we're helping each other get back on. Dead to sin self in the world, but alive to Christ. I, w- I have crucified Christ and live according to sin self in the world. That is the statement of every person before they know Christ. In this room and outside of this room, our Life verse, if you will. You heard that saying, what's your life verse? The wise Alex says all of them, right? You heard that joke? If we ever had a third service, I would never make that joke again. I apologize. Worst joke of my life. Wow. Okay. If you had a life verse before you came to Christ, it was this. I have crucified Christ. And I live for sin, self, and the world. But if you have trusted Christ, your new life saying motto is this, I have been crucified with Christ and I am now dead to sin self in the world. That's what it means to be a church committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ. If you've committed your life to Christ, fill it out on a connect card. If you're wondering what your next steps are, fill them out on a connect card. Let us know as a church family because we are indebted together to help one another live out a life that demonstrates exactly what this means. So we're committed to, to be living this beautiful truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But as we come to verse 21, we know secondly, here's why. Because of Christ's purpose, because of Christ's purpose, every disciple is freed from the demands of the law. Praise God. Because of Christ's purpose, every disciple is freed from the demands of the law. Because of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of the one, the Son of God, who loves you. He knows all about you, and yet he loves you. And he gave himself for you to make you right with God, to adopt you. Look what it says in verse 21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, which, by the way, is an insight. I think that's one of the arguments used against him in the biblical gospel. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
Christ's coming was not a mistake, and his second coming will not be a mistake either. And he comes for his church. One of the greatest offenses I hear so often, and you do too, is I, I'm okay with the idea, people might say, I'm okay with the idea that Jesus is a way to heaven. I'm okay with that. But I'm not comfortable with the idea of Jesus being the only way to heaven. The accusation goes something like this. So are you telling me that all other religions are wrong and all other worldviews are wrong? And just because I won't say yes to Jesus, I will spend eternity in hell. Because Jesus is the only way? What is interpreted as a statement of hate is itself the greatest act and statement of love possible. Jesus didn't come because there were a thousand different ways to get right with God as rebels against him. Jesus came because he is the only way. He is the only way for rebellious sinners to be made right with the holy God. Regardless of whether you were born as a Jew or Gentile, under the law or only with the law of conscience and creation upon your heart, you are a rebel against God. And God in his great love for you would send the only one that can make us right with God. The only one that's fulfilled all the demands of the law. He is the only one that will give you forgiveness. He's the only one that will justify you before God who's holy and wrathful and good. In Him you have hope. If you will look to Christ, you have a perfect Savior. And as a believer, we look to Christ and we say, thank you for saving me and thank you for giving me a purpose. Not just a purpose because I'm bored with my life, but because this is the purpose for which we've been made. To be a people called to make disciples of Jesus. He is the only one that can deliver. The world is filled with promises, but Jesus is the only one that can deliver. Do you know him? For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died for a purpose. If you will but come to him, you will know him, and you will know eternal life. He knows all the horrible things that have been done to you, and that you've done as well. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why we sing. That's why we sing. That's why we persevere. That's why we serve. That's why we love. That's why we learn. That's why we give. And that's why we go to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your next steps, I've left much to your imagination. One simple statement with a question at the end. Those who have survived their own funeral are commissioned, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So here's the question for you. 
How will this life-giving purpose demonstrate itself in your calendar this week? If we don't calendar it, it won't get done, right? We could see, you ever seen somebody? You bumped into somebody and you said, hey, we need to get together sometime. And you didn't put it on the calendar. Did you get together with that person? No, probably not. And then you see each other again and you do the same thing. Hey, we really need to get together sometime. And then three decades pass away and you're like, okay, we really should put something on the calendar. It's been like 35 years and we still haven't gotten coffee yet, right? What you put on your calendar will most likely get done. So my question to us as we consider this, as we, we've heard this word, that we, as survivors of our own funeral, are called to be a people sold out to making disciples of Jesus Christ. What is something you can put on your calendar as you pray about it and you seek the Lord today? And pray, Spirit, Lord, would you put something on my heart? Would you put someone on my heart? Would you help to give me a clear next step that I can put on my calendar to pursue you better, to be a person sold out to defending and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ? Isn't that reason to sing? Isn't that reason to celebrate? I so appreciate the songs that Stephen has chosen for us to sing because every one of them is a beautiful reflection of the truth, the beautiful truth that we have to sing together. Would you stand with me as we respond in singing to our good king?